It's time for another episode of Espresso Yourself with Chuck. And now, coming to the mic, your host, Chuck. Hey, I'm really excited to visit with our guest today on Espresso Yourself with Chuck. Uh, we worked together a long, long time ago, but uh, currently he is the executive vice president for of uh, communications and industry rela- relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. He's going to tell us what that means a little bit later, but welcome, Alan Bierga. Thanks for having me here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, When we first met, you were obviously in a different job in kind of a different career, I would say. I want to get into that, but just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, kind of maybe what your aspirations were um, at that point in your life before graduating from high school. Just kind of tell us about, about that. Sure. So I grew up on a farm uh, in north central Minnesota. Um, It was uh, really important as it turned out. I mean, I'm working my career in agriculture, um, but, you know, one of the things that you learn can be a rewarding path for a career is to do something that touches on your own personal biographical experience and, and feel like you're making a contribution that kind of helps the people from the neighborhood, right? You know, something that you feel like you are being true to a, a goal, but also being true to yourself and your family and, and some of the values that that you grew up with. So the farm that I grew up on was not a multi-generational farm. I can't tell you about our six generations on the land. It was very much a one generation farm. My parents were both from small towns. Um, they liked the idea of their children growing up in a small town and, um, working in agriculture um, and having that sort of a life. And so right when I was starting school, I was very small. They bought a bunch of trees um, and basically cleared it out into pasture um, and started farming. My dad was also a state trooper. He was on the Minnesota Highway Patrol. And um, that kept a steady income, which became really crucial when you hit the 1980s um, and you had the farm crisis and a lot of farms were going under, including one of our neighbors. Um, I was going to be a farm kid. My brother and I were going to be farm kids. And about one year into having that farm, things began to go awry. In, in other words, I developed allergies to pretty much everything there was on that farm. <laughs> it was clear that this was not going to be my destiny, uh, absent a lot of shots and a lot of treatment and a lot of wearing dust masks for certain parts of the year. Um, I was wearing masks before it was cool. and. Um, so that became really critical because there was never a thought that I was ever going to be a farm kid or a farmer. And I was doing really well in school, frankly, in the 1980s, if a kid was doing really well in school and extracurriculars, a parent telling their kid that they should be in farming someday just did not seem like a, a necessarily responsible or wise thing for a parent to be saying. It was a tough environment. So that was never really in the cards for me. I, um, you know, did basically everything in school that didn't have the word ball in it um, and went to college, uh, academic scholarship, did a lot of music um, with small private college, Fargo-Moorhead, Minnesota, North Dakota, um, Concordia College, and um, was always interested in writing. And my my major when I was starting off, and I just, I'm going to kind of concentrate more on this sort of period a little bit more since this is 
where a lot of your listeners are at. I'm sure some of them are looking at their their college choices and trying to weigh things around. And 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 when people talk about their career path, there's a lot of well, I did this and then I did this and then I did this. And I kind of want to go into some of the stuff that that's behind those decisions. Um, because, you know, there's just practical considerations that come up and circumstances and relationships and locations and worries and fears. You know, I went to Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. It was a wonderful college. I had a great education. Um, I've had a great relationship with them since I left. You know, one of the great questions I was facing and one of the big what ifs is, you know, what if instead of having gone to Concordia College at that time, I had gone where probably my SATs and my grades and my background could have taken me you know, one of the big fancy East Coast schools that had all the people I ended up hanging out with in my career anyway, out here in Washington, D.C. Um, and I've gone back and forth on that question, because on the one hand, I definitely was academically ready. Um, I don't know how I would have related to the to the culture shock, because having been a farm kid in Minnesota in the early 1990s, there would have been a culture shock. And maybe it would have been a lesson in resilience and I would have been fine. Or maybe I would have been really depressed and, and come home really sad. I'll just never know. Um, but regardless, the path that I took, so I went to Concordia, um, fairly nearby, and then I went to the University of Minnesota for graduate school. And journalism was never necessarily what I was going to do with my life. It was just always sort of there. I came, I went to college, I was a double major in history and English literature, um, but I didn't want to be a school teacher. Uh, which is kind of a tough combination, because unless you're going to go get your PhD and be an academic, there's not a lot of practical skills to apply to that. I ended up um, deciding that the way to deal with that was I was going to go work at school newspaper. Um, and college being college, I started out as a copy editor and there was a lot of drama. And within a semester, I found myself being the editor in chief and not really knowing what I was doing, but that's all about discovery, right? Um, I was doing that. I was also doing the campus radio station. I always had a lot of interest in media and that sort of work. And I always thought that journalism would be interesting because it would be a great way to kind of like see the world, like be a part of history. Remember, I'm a history major. Um, and it would also be a chance to do some writing. So there's sort of the English literature side. So journalism made sense in terms of interest and also very practical, right? I grew up on a farm. Uh, my father was a state trooper. You know, I had a very practical upbringing, very working class approach to life. So that's what I was doing. Um, and I went to graduate school. Again, I wasn't necessarily looking at going into journalism. I was thinking maybe, again, doing history and maybe doing media history, since that was my background. But, you know, I needed some pocket money. I needed some things to divert my, my mind from the culture shock of finally living in the big city of Minneapolis, St. Paul. So I started uh, working freelancing for the Minnesota Daily, which was the student paper. And got a job as their freelance editor and it was still college and it was still all very dramatic. And within a semester, I was the managing editor of that newspaper. So I did that for a bit. Um, still not necessarily certain I was going to do journalism, but I'm moving in, I'm moving more toward that path. Um, I, I put off growing up as much as I possibly could. I got my undergraduate degree and then I got my graduate degree and then I decided I needed to do my backpacking across Europe experience um, before I was too old for the year rail pass. But finally, I was 25 years old. And I remember standing on a train platform in Italy thinking, I am miserable. My life is formless and aimless. And I, I just got to start to grow up. 
So I came back and I decided that it was time to pursue my writing and, and my dreams. And, and I started sending out resumes and announcing that um, I, Alan Birga, am ready to take over the world. And the world just kind of shrugged. Uh, the world really was not working on my timeline. And this was a hard lesson learned that I've had to learn again and again. Um, but resilience is the other way that you deal with that. You know, if your situation isn't necessarily, you know, paved before you, well, you go to work and you make something happen. So I started sending out clips and resumes all over the place. And finally, I sent to the Gannett Corporation, uh, which at the time was the largest newspaper uh, company in America. I told them that I would work anywhere, but I didn't want to be in Minnesota. So that was that was one track. I wanted to get out of, I lived in Minnesota my whole life. I was ready to finally try something else. Um, in the meantime, my supervisor in St. Paul, because I had gotten a job as a part-time copy editor at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Um, no benefits, not regular hours. I had this new thing though called a cell phone. Um, and that made me reachable at all times. And that got me a lot of hours on the copy pool because other people had landlines and they couldn't be reached as easily as me. Um, and I was doing that. The other issue was my supervisor in St. Paul had worked at the Wichita Eagle in Kansas. And he said that if I ever was interested in going down to Kansas, you know, he'd introduce me to a pe couple people and maybe I could interview down there. So... I had a friend in Austin, Texas at the time, and this is the wind. This is January of 1999, and it's been snowing every day in Minnesota. I'm ready to leave Minnesota. There was an advertisement for unlimited mileage pickup rental for a week, $99. I decided to go down to Texas. Wichita was halfway. I needed someplace to sleep. Scheduled an informational interview. Slept in the truck at a wayside rest the night before. Uh, went and had a shower and interviewed with the Wichita Eagle. But first, Gannett Corporation has an opening in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for me to interview at. Well, Sioux Falls is 10 miles outside of Minnesota, so it did meet my criteria. And that's where I actually ended up going first. Um, I, I um, worked for six months as a business reporter at the Sioux Falls Argus Leader. Um, I, had, I didn't lose my connection with Wichita because an important thing is don't close doors, don't burn bridges. Keep your connections. You don't know what might shake down at some other place or how things that you were doing 15, 20 years ago, once you start moving along, may become suddenly relevant again. Um, and I have a good story about that toward the end of this. So I ended up uh, being in Sioux Falls for only six months, uh, got a job offer as a business reporter um, in the metropolis that was Wichita, which looked like a great place to live. And I worked in Wichita at the Eagle for a couple of years. And I got to tell you, I really enjoyed living in Kansas. Um, I found uh, it was Wichita was a very livable city. Um, I had a good job. I was meeting, fr making friends and kind of getting into the whole scene and stuff. Um, but, you know, I kept my connections. I did a fellowship in banking. I um, let the editors know that, you know, I had other ambitions. One day I show up at work at the Wichita Eagle. And the editor-in-chief calls me in and says, today's been an interesting day in your career. And I'm like, what? What What? what just happened? Like, what, what, you know, I'm like, try, I'm going through my head. Like, what's the issue here? They said that the Charlotte Observer's banking reporter had left to go to the Wall Street Journal. Um, and Charlotte was in the same newspaper chain as Wichita. And I could 
interview for that job. Charlotte had actually contacted Kansas because they knew through connections that I might be ready for a step up to a larger paper. They said, but a half hour after that, our Washington correspondent told us that she was leaving journalism to do something completely different. He said, so I know that you want, you've talked about going to a larger paper, but would you consider interviewing for the Washington job? Um, and that would allow you to keep a relationship with us. Well, I, you know, in my head, it took me like 30 seconds. Like this is DC. This is the big time. This is the dream. Um, but you know, I had enough presence of mind to kind of hold my options and talk about stuff. So long story short, and I've already gone on too long, but that was how I got my job in Washington. Again, just getting that rung on the ladder. The hardest part was getting there. The hardest part was driving my pickup down to Austin, Texas and doing informational interviews in Wichita, knowing no one. But once I got onto the ladder, I could prove myself with my work. And I had done well in Sioux Falls. And when I got to Wichita, I did well in Wichita. And that's what led me to the Washington job. I started in Washington the week before the September 11th terror attacks. Um, and this is where Chuck comes into my life because I came into Washington with a long list of stories to write. And on September 11th, 2001, every single one of those stories became irrelevant. Um, and Chuck was working for Congressman Tehart, who was representing Wichita, who was main focus of my coverage. I literally didn't have a pass to get into Capitol Hill and all of the security measures had changed. You couldn't get in without a pass. Chuck helped me get my pass so I could do my job. Now, where does this all lead? I come to Washington, D.C. and fall flat on my face. I make some mistakes and stories. Um, the editor, the, the head of the bureau calls me in. I think I'm going to be on the first flight back to Kansas. They take me off 9-11 coverage because it was too high stakes. I wasn't ready for the job. Um, and so I need to cover something else. Now, I had always tried to flee from agriculture. I had succeeded. But in the fall of 2001, there was a farm bill coming up. Every five years, there's a piece of legislation called the farm bill. And people in the bureau didn't know this, but I was looking for something to do. So somebody needed to cover the farm bill, and nobody wants to write about the farm bill. The farm bill is this incredibly complex piece of legislation. It affects farmers. It's certainly not solving the mysteries of the beginning war on terror and dealing with the incipient U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. So who's, who's going to write about the farm bill? How about the guy who just came from Wichita, is the youngest person in the bureau, um, secretly is not covering 9-11, and grew up on a farm? My hand went up. And I made myself the expert in agricultural policy in that bureau. And by the way, there's job security in that. If you can become the go-to person on any topic area in a knowledge-based job, you will have job security. And that's what I did. Alan, I lost your audio just for a second. Alan, can you hear me? Yes, my, my attempt to end a distraction just created a larger one because I was closing out of Outlook. I was getting alerts oh. and I didn't want the distraction. So again, I've, you know, in the, in, the, in the attempt to not have a distraction, I've created one. So I became the farm expert and the world beat a path to my door. 
all of the regional reporters had to write for their individual newspapers, needed their farm bill story. I was the guy who knew agriculture policy. Five years later, when the newspaper climate started to get much worse um, and our newspaper company was being sold and people were looking for other jobs, Bloomberg News needed a full-time agriculture writer in their bureau. And I got a nice national writing job that was very fulfilling covering agriculture. Um, I wrote a book uh, while I was at Bloomberg. I did two reporting trips in Africa writing about global food security and hunger. I had bylines. I think I counted by the time I left Bloomberg, I had bylines in 38 states. Um, I got to go all over the country doing all of this. Oh, and by the way, to back up, I was taken at, off of 9-11 coverage, but the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee at the time was a senator from Kansas, Pat Roberts, with whom I had a very good source relationship. And sometimes when they were talking about whether there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or not, Pat Roberts wouldn't return the calls of the New York Times or the Washington Post. He always returned the calls from the Wichita Eagle, um, which got me some very good stories. And by the time I was done at Knight Ritter, I was punching above my weight in intelligence and defense stories. I did. I got to grow into that role. Um, and actually, my defense coverage is some of the proudest work I've done in my career. Um, so that 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 story ended up happy as well. I've been blessed with a lot of. Um, uh, positive developments and a lot of happy stories. And some of it is more luck than I deserve. Um, but there's a little bit of skill involved too. And part of it is timing. Um, in Bloomberg, I was doing very well in agriculture, but you always have to ask yourself in terms of what your job is, what is, what best fits your life and your aspirations. And while I had a great run at Bloomberg um, for about 12 years, it became very clear that both professionally, um, because I was kind of being typecast in agriculture, and part of that was my own fault. I had other opportunities. I didn't take them. But Bloomberg was never going to have like a full agriculture team. That's not their focus. Their financial services and markets. And I was doing a very good job for them within one niche. But that's all it was going to be. At the flip side, I said in the opening of my book that this was my first book, and I was hoping that my second book would be complicated by family um, circumstances. Indeed, it has been. Um, I got older. I had kids. I needed different hours. And I also wanted to take some of these questions that I had taken through my coverage in agriculture and world food security, and I kind of wanted to come at them from a different direction. So I, I, there, I came to the point where it was just time to start looking for something outside of agriculture. And I did. And I wasn't one of these people who got pushed out the door. Um, you know, there have been a lot of layoffs and a lot of people who go into communications. I frankly wanted to move at a time when I was still young enough to have a second career um, and far enough ahead of the curve that I could build that career. So I came to the National Book Producers in 2018. And I've told people that in journalism, I often was translating rural for urban audiences. Now I often translate urban to rural farmers who are wondering why is the consumer asking me for this and why don't people understand that this is what I need from a public policy space. Um, in my job, newly minted in the last month, I, I came in as uh, senior vice president of communications. Now it's executive vice president for communications and industry relations. Um, and I know I just skipped about 20 years of my career, but you know I'm trying to do the parts most relevant to the audience, Chuck. Um, it's a, it's a natural outgrowth of what I've been doing and a chance to take my experience 
interacting with the agricultural world as a reporter and now being a part of this sector in my current role to really advocate for farmers within the broader industry, um, both to communicate priorities and, and also translate this world to them, but as well as now within the dairy industry to make sure that the farmer and cooperative uh, perspective is represented well and that these stories are told effectively because you know those dairy farmers that surrounded me in Minnesota, they live in a very different world. There aren't as many of them as there were 40 years ago. Um, they are in a much more global marketplace than they did that than they were then. It's a different regulatory environment. It's a different farm uh, support environment. Uh, I have about probably 15 years of career left. So for me, I'm starting to see the downward slope. But what I feel very fulfilled by is I can point at everything that I did in my career. And I don't really see a lot of blind alleys. A lot of things somehow have contributed to what I'm doing today, including the fact that we have a new CEO who grew up on a farm in Kansas and was very active in Kansas politics, actually worked for Pat Roberts for a while. Um, and now suddenly, like I'm doing introductory communications with my new manager and all of this stuff that I learned living in Kansas in the late 1990s and early 2000s is incredibly relevant again. And there's actually someone else in my office who's interested in it. So I'm on a high chuck. I mean, life is rolling well. It's good. I'm sorry, I've probably taken up too much of your time, but you know, throw me some questions and uh, I'm, I'm happy to be helpful any way I can. Well, no, that's great. Um, and I was glad to be a small part of that, uh, that story. And I do wanna go back a little bit and, and maybe dig into some of those, those times and the importance of relationships and looking for opportunities, seizing opportunities. Um, you, you touched on it just, just now, but can you tell us just a little bit more about the national milk producers? Are you talking about just the, the smaller producers? Are you talking about small producers and corporate dairy or like who are you? Who, dairy, big who dairy. Clients? <laughs> so the National Milk Producers Federation has been around since 1916 and it represents farmer cooperatives. And this is actually a little quirky compared to your typical farmer organization because we don't represent every dairy farmer, but because the cooperative structure is so dominant in dairy as a way to organize dairy operations, essentially we become the dairy farmer organization because probably like two thirds of the dairy farmers in the United States are, are part of NMPF. But they're organized by co-op. So technically, I think we have like 25 members because the member is actually the cooperative, but the cooperative can have 7,000 farmers. It can also have 70 farmers. It cannot, it can have seven. I mean, if you are, if you are a group of dairy farmers organized as a cooperative, you can be a member of NMPF, a full member. Now, to drill down further, since I'm just throwing around the word cooperative, cooperative is basically a, it's a, it's a way that businesses can organize to pool resources um, and sort of work together for their common betterment. And the reason it's dominant in dairy is dairy has some interesting questions as a commodity. If you grow corn, if you grow wheat, if you grow soybeans, you harvest it, you can put it in a bin. As long as you keep that bin dry, you can sell it anytime you want. Dairy is a perishable product. Um, it's harvested every day. And regardless of economic circumstances, regardless of weather conditions, regardless of whatever, the cows don't take days off. And you need a buyer for it. And the cooperative gives you a guaranteed buyer. 
It also, because you're a member of the cooperative, it's kind of like being part of a credit union, right? You can get your dividends, you can get um, you know, a return on this, you can also vote for your board that can then make investment decisions. And so unlike a lot of agricultural sectors where you sort of have the farmer and then you have the processor and you have this sort of relationship, in dairy, a lot of times the farmer is the processor. Um, dairy Farmers of America, which is our largest member, um, they bought Dean Foods. So they're the biggest milk processor in America, as well as the biggest farmer pro pro um, biggest farmer cooperative as well. Lando Lakes is a big member. Everybody's real Lando Lakes. If you see Challenge Butter, um, that's California Dairies, Inc. They're members of ours as well. Um, not every co-op has a consumer brand. Some of them are like, you know, supplying other plants or such. But if you see Cabot, uh, that's one of our members from Agrimark. If you see Tillamook, Tillamook is one of our brands. Uh, you go to a grocery shelf and you look at dairy products and high likelihood there is a National Milk Producers Federation member who is tied to that. So, so we work for dairy farmers and the cooperatives they own, which isn't exactly the same as dairy farmers because a co-op is also a business with its own interests. Um, but it puts us very close to the consumer and it also puts us very close to the farmers. Our organization, being based in D.C., you know, was set up as a lobbying organization. We try to better our members' lives through better public policy. And that means working on the farm bill. That means working on regulatory issues. That means working on trade issues. Um, but we also do a lot of things that just help the industry deal with some of its own questions. You know, um, we have this thing called the National Dairy Farmers Assuring Responsible Management Program. Um, the, it's called the Farm Program. That's dealing with animal welfare. It's dealing with sustainability issues, uh, which gets into climate issues. Um, on the industry, relate, in my role, I, what I, something I really like about my role is through my work with agriculture, I, I'm comfortable walking my way around a farm bill. Um, and I really find the policy space interesting. But I also, having grown up on a farm, really care a lot about, you know, the service aspect of it. We have members that, you know, they come to our meetings. They want to be better farmers. They want also want that national perspective. We can host CEOs of some of these co-ops, and they're in different parts of the country. They're not really competing with each other, but they don't get to talk to each other that much. And they've got questions. They can help each other out. So it's not just lobbying federal agencies. It's also being that convener for the industry so that farmer voices and, and farmer skills can be put for the betterment of everyone on a, on a pre-competitive idea, on a pre-competitive aspect, which is what the cooperative is all about. So that's what NMPF does. Got it. Thank you. Uh, and my my uh, cousins were dairy farmers, and they were a part of a cooperative. I don't even know if it exists anymore. It was Mid America, I think Mid Am. Um, they were one of the mergers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They 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 have they have moved on in different forms. Dairy Farmers of America is nationwide. Land O'Lakes is nationwide. But, you know, we also have members. I mean, we have members that are in a single county. I was just going over a list of the 50 biggest co-ops, and they're not all NMPF members. And there's all these little co-ops across Minnesota. And I'm like, I need to do a road trip and talk to these folks because I want them in NMPF. Sounds like a great road trip. <laughs> we have 10,000 lakes. Um, and you know the roads. So... I, I had forgotten, frankly, when we first met, when you when that transition occurred. Um, so thanks for reminding me. One of the things that I first realized when when we started working together was 
uh, I thought you were fair and, and especially today, and maybe it has changed. People don't think members of the media um, are fair sometimes. And, and even back then I probably questioned whether some were, were fair, but my, my job was communications director for the congressman. And so uh, our hometown paper was, you know, the, the Wichita Eagle was the predominant um, media source in, in the district because most of the folks lived in Wichita uh, in that area. So it was important that we had a good relationship, but that relationship I felt like was built on um, trust, trust that you would be fair. And I knew that you needed to be able to have trust that the information I was giving you was accurate. And, and obviously the job is to frame it in the most positive way possible for your boss. And your job is to realize that and make sure the facts get communicated to, to the audience. But I guess the, the, the point I'm getting at or kind of wandering around is the importance of relationships and how you build those relationships and um, and then even networking, because I think you have been, um, you know, just incredible at expanding your universe of of contacts. We we probably I don't remember when you went to Bloomberg. I left um, I left Congressman T Hart's office in two thousand the end of two thousand seven, and then came back in two thousand nine. But um, I don't even remember how long we worked together. But this many years later. Um, you know, we're having this conversation. So talk about the importance in, in your life and just generally of relationships. And, and you touched on this earlier because you said 15 years later, you know, one of those encounters could prove productive. Um, but could you go into how that also maybe opened up non non-employment opportunities. I know you're with, and I'm going to get this wrong, National, was it National Press Club or National Press Association? National Press Club. So you were an officer in that, which is a big deal. I, I mean, um, in DC, that that that's a really prestigious organization, and you were right in the thick of it. And you've done, you've written books, you've you've um, you've done a lot. You've met a lot of people. Tell us how that, um, why that's important, and maybe a couple other examples of how those types of, of relationships or networking have helped you get where you are. Just, I know you touched on it a little bit, but maybe you have a, a few more stories. Well, I appreciate your, your, that's very flattering, Chuck, of your perception that I've done really well with networks and contacts. Um, I've sometimes felt more on the outside looking in, and that probably goes into all sorts of psychological stuff. Uh, you alluded to National Press Club. I did have sort of a trying to take over the world phase of my life. Um, I was president of the National Press Club in 2010. There was another group, the National Association of Agriculture, excuse me, I'm sorry, apologies to the North American Agricultural Journalists. Uh, um, 50 year old brain there. I was president of the North American Agricultural Journalists in 2010, 2011, they actually overlapped. And then my book was right after that. There was a brief period, you know, there's A-list, B-list, C-list, D-list. There was a period where I felt like I might have just been poking under the ceiling of A-list. I at least got invites to some of the parties. Um, but what I realized um, was I was pushing 40 and I, I did want to have a family and like 
be like experiencing real life rather than being one of these like DC animals who did nothing but work 18 hours a day. And to everything, there's a season. I've been a big Ecclesiastes 3 guy um, to everything, there's a season. Um, and when there was a time to work 18 hours a day, I worked 18 hours a day. And when there's a time when your priorities change, then your priorities change. And whatever you do and whatever path you choose, try to do it well. Again, that gets into career career changes. But in terms of building trust, you know, that comes to another scriptural passage, right? I mean, the golden rule. Um, the idea that you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, I always felt, I mean, growing up in a rural area, it was always a fairly conservative environment. But I'd also grown up in Minnesota. And Minnesota has a different political sensibility than Kansas had. And in that sense, dealing with Kansas and, and policy as a person who'd kind of been you know, Minnesota had the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Um, it's been a fairly purple to blue state my entire life. Kansas has been very, very red. And that was it. even then that made a difference. I mean, now even more so. Um, but I always felt thankful covering the Kansas congressional delegation, which was pretty conservative, because it was a different worldview with different different. Um, base assumptions about certain things that that expressed it in a different way than what I had experienced. And that sort of openness to different ways of looking at things is really important, at, especially in journalism, if you are trying to be fair, um, but also true in your life. I mean, I'll twist this in a way you might not normally think about it, but let's let's talk about diversity. What does diversity really mean? It's different life experiences forming different perspectives that lead to different conclusions on topics. And whether you agree with it or not, understanding it will make you a better informed citizen and a better, more effective human being in seeking whatever your goal may be. And so I could deal with people who maybe personally that wasn't the way that I saw the world, but I was always curious about what makes this tick? And even if it may not be the conclusion that I came from, if I had grown up in that environment and had those experiences and had had this way of looking at the world, yeah, that's what I would think. And I wasn't trying to prejudge. I was just trying to figure out why this worked as the way it was. You know, I, would I have ever voted for Senator Sam Brown back in an election? You know, for people going back to Kansas, I'm probably still revealing too much of myself. It might have been tough for him to get my vote. He was one of my favorite people to talk to in my time in journalism because the guy was super smart and had reasons for thinking what he thought. And I had a lot of respect for those reasons and that intellectual habit. Look, we all have our boundaries, right? Everybody has their spot where they say, no, this is too much. I draw fairly broad boundaries because I want to have a broad range of experience. That ties to your contacts and that ties to your trust, okay? This also is very important and unfortunately seemingly a dying art in Washington public policy, okay? There can be common ground where you might not have thought there was common ground. If you come at people in good faith and are open to hearing that perspective, you can find some ground where maybe you didn't even think anything existed, okay? In journalism, this is important because what I was trying to do was find out what was going on between different point of points of view and explaining them to my readers in ways that would help them be more thoughtful and informed citizens as well.
which, by the way, is a different type of journalism than cover the breaking story or gotcha or exposing the scandal. I wasn't necessarily the world's greatest investigative guy, I'll be honest with you. But in terms of trying to understand the world and being fair to people, I'm very proud of the work that I did. And I think it's I think it stood the test of time quite well. In terms of building your network, then, if you take that same approach, you can find a lot of allies in places where maybe you wouldn't have thought there were allies. And it's not that you have to schmooze somebody. I'm not a good schmoozer, to be honest with you. I'm not good at small talk. Um, and out here, I didn't go to their college and I didn't play lacrosse. Um, I've never gone, I've, I've gone golfing once in my life. It was a nine hole course when I was 18. Um, I don't have a lot of like the stereotypical Washington DC networking skills. And sometimes it, it hasn't worked to my benefit, but I've gotten to know plenty of people and we keep in touch and we get great opportunities like the one I'm having today. <laughs> Well, I, um, it, I've enjoyed watching kind of from afar, actually, through social media, your career. And uh, I'm glad, again, to have been a small part of the, the story. I'm interested. Critical at a pretty crucial time, Chuck. You know, for a while, I told everybody that I grew up in Kansas. <laughs> They're like, what? You were in a farm? You were in a farm? And I said, no, I grew up in Kansas. I, I came there when I was 25. I was extremely immature. Kansas gave me my chance and I'll always be thankful for everyone involved in that era. Well, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, there were obviously some tragic times, nine 11, but um, it was, it was a good period of time too with work and, and relationships. And, and uh, so you were a significant part of, of that for me. I'm interested in knowing now you've gotten out of the 18 hour day season of life. You're in the family season of life. What do you do for fun when you're well, not? Well, first of all, it's still an 18 hour day. Okay. <laughs> Just a different 18 hours. Because look, you know, I'm getting up five in the morning, you know, work until seven and then the kids get up and then it's kids seven to nine and then it's go to work. And often it's leaving work a little earlier than I normally would because the kids got an extracurricular. I, I, I've told our chief economist, if you want me to edit that newsletter, the best time to give it to me is between 5.30 and 6.30 on a Monday because I'm just sitting there with my laptop in the back of choir rehearsal. And now I got the swim team. I mean, you know, you know how it is. Being a parent and trying to be a good parent and, and also be good at your job, it's, it's brutal. I will say that the flexible work world has been helpful. Um, I, I, I've I kind of always worked like that, honestly, regardless of what the tasks were, because it, it used to be like I would work from, you know, five to seven in the morning, and then I'd spend two hours doing the National Press Club or something. Um, but what do I do for fun? Um, well, first of all, I don't have a lot of fun. Um, you know, if I have fun, it's probably related to the kids somehow. You know, my life really re revolves around that. And I'm fortunate I live in a neighborhood with a lot of parents who are very helpful and, you know, we all are, we're all in it together. And that's, a, that's a great feeling to have as well. You know, going hiking with the kids, doing kids events, as far as like me, 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 me time. Um, I had a milestone birthday last June. Big one round number. I'm looking forward to my thirties. Yeah. Right. We kind of all know that's not the case. I ran a marathon for the big five zero. I'm very proud of this. It, um, I hadn't done, I used to do a lot of distance running when I was younger. And um, 
I hadn't done a race of that distance in eight years, but I can now say I've done marathons in my 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And if I wanted to say that last one, I was going to get it done as soon as possible because these bones are getting old. So I do a lot of distance running. I, I work on a, I, I live on a really great trail. Um, I played trumpet in college, um, in high school, and I still have my trumpet. I, you know, I've been poking around on that again. I play at church every once in a while. Um, that's been very fulfilling. It's a great example for the kids. But, you know, look, you know, I don't, I don't go to rock concerts anymore. My ears are going bad anyway. I mean, it's pretty much kids and catch as you can hope 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 not to eat too much macaroni leftover macaroni and cheese right right well alan bjerga thank you so much for taking time to espresso yourself with chuck and having at least a cup i don't know if there's actually espresso in there but uh we really appreciate your time and and sharing words of wisdom with our students our break room has the highest quality milk and when i have my coffee I support my members and you should too. So I love I milk. That. So here's to uh, dairy producers, milk producers. Amen. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for watching Espresso Yourself with Chuck. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you will subscribe to the channel and also check out all the videos on our Jobs for America's Graduates Kansas YouTube site. Music for Espresso Yourself with Chuck is provided by Ben Sound Music at bensound.com. Thank you to our announcer, Kelly Newton, and producers Kim Fertig and Don Neer.